welcome to Crossview Radio, weekly podcast for Wayne County. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We exist to glorify God by exalting Christ and magnifying the gospel for the joy of all nations. I can't exactly recall the source on this, but I remember hearing one time that this generation's battle is a battle over the dictionary. And this may sound perhaps overly simplistic, but I think it's profoundly accurate. You are familiar, of course, with the oft-quoted phrase, he who defines the terms wins the argument. When two opposing sides are having a debate on an issue, it's essential that both sides agree on the definitions of the terms used. Otherwise, meaningful discussion can't happen. Today's battle over the dictionary is a battle over terms, over definitions, and really over absolute truth itself. I remember a number of years ago, I was sharing the gospel with a couple of Mormons, and you have to spend a lot of time going over definitions with them. Otherwise, you'll walk away saying, man, I think they do believe in the gospel. The problem is that they use all the same language that we would use as Christians, but they have attached different meanings to the terms. For example, they also believe in the fall of man, but they view it as a good thing. In fact, they call it a fall upward. They believe in God, but they define him differently. In the same way, we face a daunting task over definitions today. This may seem insignificant or perhaps just a little bit of belly aching over semantics, but I believe that he who controls the dictionary controls the culture. Why? Because of what Noam Chomsky said about propaganda. He said, quote, that's the whole point of good propaganda. You want to create a slogan that nobody's going to be against and everybody's going to be for. Nobody knows what it means because it doesn't mean anything, end quote. An excellent example of this, of course, is the phrase Black Lives Matter. Is there anybody out there really who disagrees with that? Now, of course, it is true that there are some white supremacists out there. There are some people who really do hate black people. Um, But on the whole, are there people out there in the public arena, people debating, people um, having a conversation in public who disagree with that statement? Chomsky says that a slogan is good when absolutely nobody could be against it. Do you see the value of this in an ideological battle? It's easy to manipulate people and attribute a position to your opponent that he doesn't hold. It sounds like this, you know, hey, we're the group Black Lives Matter, and we believe that Black Lives Matter, but we do have some opponents who disagree with us and oppose our mission. And of course, that immediately sounds like uh, everyone who is opposed to the group is opposed to um, saying that Black Lives Matter. Here's the catch. I've never met, uh, again, I'm sure they are out there. In fact, I, I, I think I know that there's some out there, but I've never met a person who opposes BLM on the grounds of that statement itself. I've never met a person who says they oppose BLM because they think that black lives don't matter. But in popular culture, it is easy to paint a picture where BLM is kind of the kind and caring ones because of the phrase itself, and those who are opposed to BLM must be opposed because they hate black people. You've created a slogan that makes for good propaganda, but not good dialogue. You've rigged the whole system by hijacking language so that if you oppose their viewpoint, you are wrong from the start before you've even had a chance to open your mouth. 
Think of how bad it sounds to oppose Black Lives Matter. Are you saying that you hate black lives? No. Let me give you an example. Imagine a doctor developing a certain treatment for cancer, and he names this treatment, quote-unquote, the cure. And another doctor comes along and says that they believe a different treatment works better, and they don't subscribe to his treatment. Now imagine this first doctor railing against the second doctor saying that he opposes a cure for cancer because he opposes the cure and he hates his cancer patients. That sounds really bad, but it's really just hijacking language. The second doctor dearly loves his patients. He just believes that there's a better strategy, that there's a better way. And just because he opposes the quote-unquote the cure doesn't mean that he opposes a cure for cancer. It simply means that he thinks a different one is better. And along the same lines, those who oppose BLM don't hate black people. They just believe that the diagnosis and the cure of the sociological problem is different. But propaganda is powerful, and that's what the media has discovered. Carl Truman made this clear in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Regarding the transformation and manipulation of language, Truman writes this, quote, The most obvious evidence of this change is the way language has been transformed to serve the purpose of rendering illegitimate any dissent from the current political consensus on sexuality. Criticism of homosexuality is now homophobia. That of transgenderism is transphobia. The use of the term phobia is deliberate and effectively places such criticism of the new sexual culture into the realm of the irrational and points toward an underlying bigotry on part of those who hold such views. End quote. Who wants to be a bigot? Who wants to be labeled as homophobic or transphobic? Keep in mind that the psychological pressure that you feel um, to, to, to avoid being called those things is part of the strategy. Uh, They want you to feel out of place, to feel out of touch, to feel old-fashioned. It's intentional. J. Gresham Machen, in his book Christianity and Liberalism, observed a similar thing regarding the uh, manipulation of language, or, or what he calls here the double use of language. He says this, quote, In order to maintain themselves in the evangelical churches and quiet the fears of their conservative associates, The liberals resort constantly to a double use of language. A young man, for example, has received disquieting reports of the unorthodoxy of a prominent preacher. Interrogating the preacher as to his belief, he receives a reassuring reply. You may tell everyone, says the liberal preacher, in effect, that I believe Jesus is God. The inquirer goes away much impressed. It may well be doubted, however, whether the assertion, I believe that Jesus is God or the like, on the lips of liberal preachers is strictly truthful. The liberal preacher attaches indeed a real meaning to the words, and that meaning is very dear to his heart. He really does believe that Jesus is God, but the trouble is that he attaches to the words a different meaning from that which is attached to them by the simple-minded person to whom he is speaking. He offends, therefore, against the fundamental principle of truthfulness in language. According to that fundamental principle, language is truthful, not when the meaning attached to the words by the speaker, but when the meaning intended to be produced in the mind of the particular person addressed is in accordance with the facts, end quote. This is the game of playing fast and loose with definitions. It is a battle over the dictionary. This was a big theme in George Orwell's 1984. Uh, He wrote this, quote, The party said that Oceania had never been in alliance with Eurasia. 
He, Winston Smith, knew that Oceania had been in alliance with Eurasia as short a time as four years ago. But where did that knowledge exist? Only in his own consciousness, which in any case must soon be annihilated. And if all others accepted the lie which the party imposed, if all records told the same tale, then the lie passed into history and became truth. Who controls the past, ran the party slogan, controls the future. Who controls the present, controls the past. And yet the past, though uh, of its nature uh, alterable, had never been altered. Whatever was true now was true from everlasting to everlasting. It was quite simple. All that was needed was an unending series of victories over your own memory. Reality control, they called it. News speak, double think, end quote. Here's another quote from Orwell. He says, the past was erased, the erasure was forgotten, and the lie became truth. And another, the party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command. And finally, this last quote that I'll uh, take from 1984 says this, every record has been destroyed or falsified, every book rewritten, every picture has been repainted, every statue and street building has been renamed, every date has been altered, and the process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. Now, this one is significant because we've actually seen this recently in our own society, where, well, two years ago, we saw the then Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett's hearings, and they got talking about the Obergefell decision, and Barrett used the phrase in her um, talk, uh, sexual preference, and she used that to refer to homosexuals. Now, one of the senators did not like this phrase, sexual preference, and this senator said the following— Uh, Sexual preference is an offensive and outdated term. It is used by anti-LGBTQ activists to suggest that sexual orientation is a choice. It is not. Okay, so where am I going with this? Well, this is where things took an interesting turn. And this is where you kind of start to wonder about Orwell's every record has been destroyed statement. The very same day, very same day, that this senator said sexual preference, the term sexual preference is offensive, Webster's Dictionary altered the definition of the word preference to match that. And so if you go in right now, I I looked this up, and it's still the case today. Um, If you go to Webster's Dictionary, you will see that there is a new meaning attached to the word preference. There is a line now that says offensive, and then Webster's Dictionary goes on to explain in a paragraph below the the definition that they've updated, and their little paragraph says this, quote, the term preference as used to refer to sexual orientation is widely considered offensive in its implied suggestion that a person can choose who they are sexually or romantically attracted to and quote. This is significant that you can have in popular culture, um, a statement is said to be offensive and the dictionary immediately changes to match that. Neil Shenvey shared this and wrote this. He said, I've been pretty hesitant to quote Orwell's every record has been destroyed or falsified every book rewritten 1984 line, but this is truly insane. You see, the hijacking of language uh, to produce a certain outcome is intentional. 
Another term for the hijacking of language is propaganda. And I want to read to you a a couple of quotes from an article featured on the Answers in Genesis website. Uh, One of the quotes here is this, according to one psychologist's 1943 definition, Propaganda is a process which deliberately attempts through persuasion techniques to secure from the propagandee before he can deliberate freely the responses desired by the propagandist, end quote. The article goes on to describe the influence uh, by a man by the name of Edward Bernays. And if you have never read anything um, about Edward Bernays, I encourage you to do so. It's actually really fascinating. Um, really remarkable, some of the things that he was able to do in persuading people in America. Uh, Here's one quote from the article again. Bernays noticed that wartime propaganda techniques included harnessing the influence of authority figures, generating cliches, and creating emotional appeals. Now, Bernays took these techniques and applied them to marketing campaigns. As an example... I don't know how many of us uh, are aware of this, um, but bacon and eggs was not always a popular breakfast item. It was not associated with uh, breakfast. In the 1920s, a company hired Bernays to change that because they wanted to drive up bacon sales. And so the article says this, quote, recognizing the power of authority figures, Bernays recruited a doctor to ask 5,000 other physicians whether they agreed that a heavier breakfast, say bacon and eggs, provided more energy. Bernays publicized the results in newspapers, demand for bacon rose, and the campaign became a sizzling success, end quote. Ha, 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 sizzling success. But causing bacon to become a popular breakfast item, and by the way, this is this is 1920s. This has been 100 years that uh, this has been a, a successful campaign for. Causing bacon to become a popular breakfast item was not the only thing Bernays accomplished. Uh, in his day, smoking was popular among men, but it was not popular among women. And he actually changed that so that it did become popular among women. Uh, The article says, quote, to increase tobacco consumption among women, for instance, Bernays linked smoking with women's rights by dubbing cigarettes torches of freedom, end quote. In his book on uh, propaganda, Bernays says, quote, those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed. Our minds are molded. Our tastes formed. Our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of, end quote. This is kind of scary. Bernays called this engineering of consent. This is why, of course, we need to be cautious uh, of statements that do appeal to certain authorities like trust the science or all the experts say and things like that. Authority figures carry a lot of weight and people know that and things can be manipulated. It actually, to be honest, kind of blows my mind to think that a handful of people could get together and say, hey, uh, nobody eats bacon for breakfast, and um, how about we change this so that the entire country eats bacon for breakfast? And then, you know, Bernays walks into the room and says, you know, say no more, it's done. A couple of newspaper articles later, and for the past 100 years, bacon has been considered a staple breakfast item. Uh, Here's the takeaway. 
If you don't think that the media, big business, the government, your school, Hollywood, and your neighbors don't have any influence over you, you're naive. One author calls this manufacturing consent because someone else manufactured it in you and you foolishly think that you voluntarily consented. Our minds are constantly being shaped. They're being shaped by the media, by government, information agencies, slogans, catchphrases, peer pressure, so on and so forth. I'm not saying that everything we're told is a lie. That's not my point at all. I'm not saying that we should disbelieve everything we hear, but I am saying we ought to be cautious and careful and mindful and discerning. I am saying that. Our minds are constantly being shaped for good or for ill. The issue is not whether you will renew your mind, but what you will renew your mind with. Chesterton Chesterton said that there are two kinds of people, those who accept dogma and know it, and those who accept dogma and don't know it. The problem with our current generation is the latter, which is why we'll believe practically anything. Let me give you a couple more examples. In 1905, the German Society for Race Hygiene was founded. It was the world's first eugenics organization. Talk about hijacking language. Of all the ways to talk about genocide, you put a pretty little label on it and call it race hygiene. Who's opposed to hygiene? It sounds good until you realize, wait a second, we're talking about genocide and mass murder here. Or consider Darwin's book, The Origin of Species. Did you know that that's not the full title of the book? The full title of Darwin's book is this, On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Don't you want to preserve favored races? Language is important. It can be very manipulative. Now, I want to look at one more example of hijacked language that is long past or long past due fixing. And I've mentioned it a couple of times on this podcast series, and I want to state it more directly here. There is only one race, and that is the human race. And I think that we need to drop the word race and we need to use the word ethnicity instead to talk about different ethnicities in the world. And instead of racism, I think we ought to say ethnic partiality. Acts 17.26 is one of the go-to verses on this topic. It says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God made from one man every nation of mankind. We all descend from Adam and Eve. There is one race. Polygenism is the belief that humans did not descend from a common ancestor. This belief says that we all evolved at different rates in different parts of the world. Monogenism, on the other hand, is the belief that we all did descend from a common ancestor. Before evolution became popular, monogenism was the primary view. It was not until the 18th century where polygenism became popular. Polygenism is the biological justification for ethnic partiality. Evolutionists actually argued that blacks or Indians or other ethnicities were not as highly evolved as Europeans, and therefore they were able to justify slavery and brutality. And in fact, a lot of this is kind of some of the um, foundational material that Hitler used in um, 
in uh, Germany. To my knowledge, most secularists now reject polygenism, as they ought to, and they embrace the biblical view once again, which is monogenism. They actually give, uh, sometimes, lip service to the Bible because uh, they actually call the first mother mitochondrial Eve. Uh, And so this is a good thing. Nevertheless, I would suggest that the word race, specifically when it's used to say that there are different human races, the word race in that way is a hangover from polygenism that needs to go. Even the book Critical Race Theory understands this at least to a degree. It says this, quote, A third theme of Critical Race Theory, the social construction thesis, holds that race and races are products of social thought and relations. Not objective, inherent, or fixed, they correspond to no biological or genetic reality. Rather, races are categories that society invents, manipulates, or retires when convenient, end quote. Now, I'm going to concede here that this is one facet of critical race theory that I have never been able to understand. And and here here's here's the dilemma that I face. They believe that race is socially constructed. And uh, and I would agree with that. There there is one race to say that this um group of people is one race and this is another race and this is another race that is polygenism and so that is socially constructed and it was used uh as leverage to justify all sorts of injustices um uh hitler uh slavery um some races are more advanced than others some are more evolved than others so on and so forth so my question is, and here's the dilemma that I face, what, why do they continue to emphasize it? If, if, they, if they want to say that it is socially constructed, th- then why has everything become about it? If race is fake, then why is everything about race today? It's kind of like the, uh, do you know the, uh, the cast it into the fire Lord of the Rings meme where uh, Elrond shouts, to Isildur to cast the ring into the fire to destroy it, and Isildur replies, "No." Uh, that that's what I think is going on here. Uh, on the one hand, CRT advocates say that race is a construct that it's not real, and so we reply to that with, "Amen." There's only one human race, so go ahead and destroy it, get rid of it, stop talking about it, do away with it, stop constructing it based on this. And they say, "No." What what in the world is going on here? I think that modern CRT proponents are monogenists in name only. In practice, they are still polygenists. In other words, they speak as if race were fake and act as if it were real. They desperately need consistency, but if they do bring consistency to it, it would ruin them. They can't live as if race were fake because their system requires division. On the other hand, they can't live as if race were real because that would affirm Darwin's idea of favored races. What then is the answer? Well, it is quite simple. It is to love the truth. 
to hijack language is to despise the truth and to love the manipulation. We are reminded in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What's more, Jesus does not resort to the hijacking of language or propaganda in order to know us. He simply gives the truth. He gives his word in our language, and it is clear. God's word is straightforward. It is understandable. It is true. And our responsibility is to be truthful with our neighbors, to avoid manipulating language, and simply communicate things in an honest way. That is what we need. Thanks for listening to Crossview Radio. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We meet Sundays at 10 a.m. To find out more about Crossview Church, visit us online at crossvieworville.com. Thank you.